For our lesson of the day, I will read from James chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you ask now that you would speak to us words of wisdom through your word, that we might take this wisdom to heart and live by it. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. There is a definite flow of thought to James' letter. Each new section links to the previous one. That's actually why I went back and started with verse 12 this morning, because really verse 12 is tying up loose ends from the previous section about the tongue and then introducing this next section about two different kinds of wisdom. In fact, go back to the middle of chapter 2 and at least start to think about this from there. Uh, Back in the middle of chapter 2, James develops the connection between faith and works. Faith without works is dead, he says. Faith must produce works of obedience. There is dead faith that does not lead to salvation. There is a living faith that does. Then in chapter 3, he gets into our words, but words are also works. And so our words should also be the product of our faith in Christ. Our faith should not only give rise to works of obedience, but to words of obedience, because our words are just the outflow of our hearts. But there at the beginning of chapter 3, James points out that this is not always easy. He says the tongue is a fire, a world of wickedness. The tongue creates its own ecosystem. The tongue creates a whole ecosystem of evil, a whole universe, a whole world of evils. All different kinds of sinfulness flow out of our mouths. The tongue is a weapon of mass destruction. No one, James says, can tame the tongue. Words should connect us, but instead all too often our words drive us apart. It's so easy to go wrong with our words. How can we go right? How can we sanctify our speech? What should guide our use of the tongue? Well, it's obvious it's impossible to come up with rules for speaking in every situation we might encounter. And so if you don't have rules, what does it take? It takes wisdom. And that is the topic of the next section, the one in front of us now. We move from works to words to wisdom. And there's a very orderly, logical progression between these different topics. Just as James has contrasted two kinds of faith, living faith and dead faith, and two kinds of speech, words that bless and words that curse, so he will now contrast two kinds of wisdom, heavenly wisdom from above and demonic wisdom from below. And just as there are two uses of the tongue, so there are these two wisdoms. And so we're going to look at both sides of this. I don't know how long we'll spend in this passage. It's a, it's a very rich and detailed 
passage, but we need to look at this contrast here between heavenly wisdom and demonic wisdom, true wisdom and pseudo-wisdom. I'll introduce wisdom, and then today we'll start talking about the heavenly wisdom. It's good to know what the real thing is so that you can identify the counterfeit. That's, that's how it works. We'll deal with the real thing first. So what is wisdom? What is heavenly wisdom? You know, it's interesting that as much as Scripture talks about wisdom and commands us to pursue wisdom and commends wisdom to us, it never actually defines wisdom. It illustrates wisdom. It talks about the fruit of wisdom. But it never really gives us a definition of wisdom. The Bible describes wisdom. It describes what wisdom does, but it never defines it. You see that here in James chapter 3. We're not given a definition of wisdom. We're just told what it does. And that's really a lot like the book of Proverbs, which again and again and again in the book of Proverbs, you find what wisdom does, how wisdom acts in a certain situation, the attitude or actions of wisdom. But you never really get a definition. There's all this talk about what wisdom does, but Solomon never really defines it. And James really doesn't define it either. But let's not let that stop us. Let's try to get some kind of definition in front of us. If we were to take everything Scripture says about wisdom and its various descriptions of wisdom, and if we were to distill that down, what is it? What is this wisdom that we are to pursue? Think if we were to try to distill all of Scripture's teaching about wisdom into a simple definition, it would be something like this. Wisdom is the art of living well. Wisdom is the art of living well, living faithfully. Wisdom is skillful living. It's the skill of living faithfully in a world that is often hostile to the faith. It's the skill of living in a way that reflects God's character. Even though our hearts don't always cooperate with that, even though uh, Satan is always seeking to pull us away from this pathway of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing God and knowing ourselves. It's knowing how to live for God in all the various situations and circumstances of life. It's really interesting. One of my favorite passages is in Proverbs 30, where wisdom is used to describe the skill of various animals. It actually talks about the wisdom of different kinds of animals, uh, like the rock badger and the coney and the ants describes the skill of these animals, the wisdom these animals have that allows these animals to survive and thrive in hostile environments. Wisdom, in a sense, is how these animals can adapt to their environments. God gives the animals wisdom, a kind of skill at living, so they can adapt to environments that are otherwise very hostile to them. In Exodus chapter 31, wisdom describes the skill of the, of the craftsmen, of the artists and artisans who will work with stone and wood and metals to make artifacts for the tabernacle. That kind of mastery of the creation, that kind of mastery that can transform the raw materials of the world into beautiful and useful objects, that's wisdom. Wisdom comes in skillfully working with your hands to transform something in the creation. Wisdom brings together form and function as it engages with the creation. Wisdom shapes a life then the same way a craftsman shapes marble or wood. Think about Michelangelo taking a block of marble and transforming that into a beautiful statue of David. In the same way, for the wise man, his mind's eye can see what the godly life looks like, 
And so then through his wisdom, he brings that to expression in the give and take of daily life. Wisdom is the art of living well. And it truly is an art. It's having foresight. It's devising a plan and a vision for life. It's having the creative and imaginative expertise, the know-how to apply God's Word to a myriad of complex situations that are not addressed explicitly in God's Word. The law of God is straightforward enough. But knowing how to live by the law or how to apply the law in various situations is often not straightforward. And that's why we need wisdom. The law says do not commit adultery. And that's very clear. But to have a happy marriage, it takes a lot more than just obeying that commandment. Having a good marriage, a happy marriage requires a whole lot more. It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to know how to live happily ever after as husband and wife. More than just what the law gives you. Yes, you should avoid adultery, but there's more to a happy marriage than that. The law says do not steal. That's very clear, very straightforward. But not stealing is not enough. Wisdom figures out how to make an honest living that provides not only for one's own family and future, but also has enough extra to share with those who are in need. It takes a kind of wisdom to do that. Do not steal. That's clear. That's straightforward. But how to actually carve out a living to provide for your family, to provide for your family's future, and then to be able to share, that takes wisdom. The law commands love your neighbor. That would seem simple enough. But it takes wisdom to truly perceive what your neighbor needs, what neighbor love looks like in any given situation. What does neighbor love look like when your neighbor is sick? Or when your neighbor is out of work? Or when your neighbor is dealing with a rebellious teenager? Wisdom has to do with the nitty-gritty details of life. It is intensely practical. Wisdom is not just ideas or concepts. It has to be lived. It can only be gained through experience. Through obeying God and the various situations we find ourselves in. Now James here, I think, assumes that the law questions of life are largely settled for the recipients of this letter. The Christians he's writing to are from a predominantly Jewish background. They know the law. They know the Ten Commandments. But they are struggling with the wisdom questions of life. The law questions are settled generally, but the wisdom questions are not. Wisdom, James shows us here, grasps reality. Wisdom is tuned in to the way the world works, to the nature of things. The nature of God, yes, ultimately, but human nature as well. The nature of the world around us. What are the, the patterns that we find in the world around us? What kind of principles govern? What, what kind of insight can we glean through our experience? Wisdom brings us this insight. We start to see how God manages His world. The patterns in God's providence. No, wisdom doesn't eliminate mystery, but it does bring perspective. It means we see things in proportion. And so wisdom gives us a framework for interpreting reality. Wisdom gives us a framework for acting faithfully in the world. Wisdom is highly textured. It, it has to do with the finer points of Christian living, the nuances of things. Wisdom allows us to live life at its best. Which is not to say the wise will have an easy life. Suffering, after all, is common to all of us. And wisdom does not shield us from all forms of suffering. It does shield us from some forms of suffering that come from foolishness, but not from all forms of suffering. 
But for the wise, the wise have a way of navigating life's challenges, of counting trials as joy, uh, of maneuvering through the trials of life, the tests of life faithfully. Wisdom is the good life. Wisdom is the beautiful life. Wisdom is the true life. Wisdom cuts across everything we do. If you have wisdom, it starts to seep down into everything you do. So wisdom determines what level of wisdom you have. Wisdom determines how easy you are to live with. How easy you are to live with as a spouse or as a parent or as a child. Wisdom determines how easy you are to work with or to work for. How you are as an employee or an employer. How well you manage your time, your money, your emotions. How you make decisions. How you do in positions of leadership as a boss or a manager or a parent or an elder. Wisdom is not a matter of having a high IQ. Uh, It's not really so much a function of the intellect. In fact, it's much more a function of character, which is really James' point here. James shows us wisdom is moral much more than it is intellectual. It's a moral category much more than it is an intellectual category. It has to do with our character more than our intellectual abilities. Wisdom is, I think in many cases, closer to what we might call street smarts than book smarts. That's not to say the wise man won't read, that he won't engage in learning in that kind of way. He will. But wisdom is gritty. Wisdom is is savvy. Wisdom is witty. It's clever. Proverbs describes life in terms of two paths you can take. The path of wisdom and the path of folly. Wisdom and foolishness are constantly being contrasted. James is giving us a similar contrast, but he frames it differently. He describes it in terms of heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. That heavenly wisdom is the true wisdom. That earthly wisdom is what Proverbs calls foolishness. Now, ultimately, wisdom enables us to rule the way God designed us to. Wisdom means that little piece of the creation, that little piece of the culture, that little piece of life that God has assigned to you, that little sphere of influence you have. It's bigger for some than for others. But that sphere of influence you have, wisdom enables you to rule there well the way God designed you to. Wisdom, therefore, enables you to change the world. Maybe just your little piece of it. Maybe some much larger piece, depending on what calling God assigns to you. But wisdom allows us to rule well the way God wanted Adam and Eve to rule in the beginning. Wisdom allows us to rule according to God's design. And this, I think, is really the issue James' original readers were so concerned with. They knew the Messiah, the promised king, had come. They also knew all the things God had promised to do when Messiah came. The promises of the kingdom all throughout the Pentateuch and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And so they know Messiah's come. They know they're united to the Messiah. They know the kingdom is now here. And yet when they look out at the world around them, what do they find? They find Herod is still in charge. In Israel, they find the Pharisees and Sadducees, the very ones who helped get Jesus crucified, are still in power. They're the ones with influence. They find Caesar is still ruling over the Roman Empire. In fact, what they find is they've had to scatter out from Jerusalem because they were being persecuted. 
And so they're starting to wonder, why aren't the promises coming to fruition? Where is the great revolution God promised us? Where is this expected transformation the prophets talked about? Why don't we have influence? We're the ones who are united to the King, to the Messiah. Why don't we have influence? Why hasn't our sphere of influence been enlarged? Why don't we have the kind of power that we expected to have at this point? And they're beginning to get impatience. And they're being tempted to resort to a different kind of wisdom, a kind of demonic wisdom that says, hey, you can have the kingdom without suffering. You can have the kingdom without having to wait. But James wants them to see this is a pseudo-wisdom. It is anti-wisdom. It is a counterfeit. It is the wisdom of the world. It is the wisdom of hell. And trying to bring the kingdom in in a worldly way through anger, even through violence, that's what they're tempted to do. That is a dead end. They will not reap the harvest they long for if they go this direction. They're wondering, why haven't the saints inherited the earth? Why haven't the disciples of Jesus inherited the earth? Why haven't we reaped a harvest of righteousness? Why hasn't the world been set right? Why hasn't civilization been changed? Why hasn't the, the culture been transformed? And again, we may ask those questions ourselves. We may say the promises God has made, they don't seem to be coming to fruition. Why is that? Well, those in James' original audience, they had to learn God's wisdom. A very different kind of wisdom than worldly wisdom. They had to learn God's way of changing the world would be very different. The church will serve and suffer their way to victory. The kingdom God is bringing in is a different kind of kingdom. The wisdom of the cross is very different from the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of heaven is very different from Satan's wisdom. Satan promised Adam and Eve wisdom that they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a pseudo-wisdom, a counterfeit wisdom. They wanted wisdom. They wanted it now. What they got was a counterfeit. James is showing us what true wisdom looks like. And he's saying to his audience, he's saying to us, don't resort to worldly wisdom. Live by heavenly wisdom. If you really want to change the world, if you want your life changed, if you want your community transformed, if you want the culture transformed, if you want civilization to be reformed, live by heavenly wisdom. If you want to heavenize the world, you have to live by this heavenly wisdom. That is James' overarching concern here. His overarching concern, why he wrote these verses. He's seeking to answer the question, what does kingdom life in a fallen world look like? What does it mean to be citizens of God's kingdom in this fallen, wretched culture we find ourselves in? How do we live so we can be instruments of bringing in this promised kingdom, knowing there's all kinds of opposition and hostility? Look at what James says here, verse verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Some think that James is still addressing the church's leadership as he was back at the beginning of chapter 3 when he said not many of you should seek to become teachers. And you can make a good case for that, that he's speaking primarily to leaders uh, because what he says here really echoes Deuteronomy chapter 1 where Moses tells the Israelites, choose for yourselves men of wisdom and understanding to be heads over you. Heads over your tens and your fifties and your hundreds and your thousands. Choose among, choose wise men from among yourselves who can serve as officers for your tribes. It's as though Moses said to the people of Israel, where are your wives? 
They're the ones you should make leaders. And James is asking the same question. Where are your wives? Who has wisdom and understanding among you? But even if James is targeting leaders primarily here, even as in the section on the tongue, what he has to say really does apply to the whole congregation. It really does apply to the whole church. He goes on in verse 13. He says, whoever is wise, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, James says, let he who has wisdom prove it. If you have wisdom, demonstrate it. Let him demonstrate his wisdom by how he lives. If he has wisdom, it's going to be manifest. His wisdom is going to be put on display. And this is how it is. Proverbs make this really, really clear as well. If you have wisdom, or to the degree you have wisdom, it will be put on display by how you live. Just as faith is demonstrated in works, so wisdom is demonstrated in conduct. Wisdom can be seen. You can see wisdom in a person's life. There's a kind of transparency to wisdom. You can see the fruits of wisdom. If a person has wisdom, the fruit of wisdom will be there. I mean, you either have wisdom or you don't. And your life will show it either way. You can't fake wisdom. You can't hide the lack of it. And if you have it, it will inevitably and inescapably be seen in your conduct. And again, this is because wisdom is utterly practical. It's transformative of life in the most practical and most basic of ways. The test of wisdom is our way of life. The test of wisdom is our conduct. In fact, you can think of life as sort of one wisdom test after another. We're continually faced with challenges that test us to see whether or not we have wisdom. Whether or not we're leveling up in our wisdom. Whether or not we're growing and and maturing in our wisdom. Those with wisdom can be identified. James shows us that here. The rest of Scripture does as well. Those with wisdom can be identified not because they lead suffering-free lives, moving from one victory to another, lives that are constantly full of prosperity. Again, that would be a kind of pseudo-wisdom. No, those who have true wisdom manifest their wisdom by their ability to run the obstacle course of life without stumbling. Whatever challenges come their way, they are able to deal with them. Whatever sadness and suffering and pain they have to deal with, their wisdom is evident in how they rise to the occasion again and again. Even in times of suffering, even in places of pain. The wise man may look very defeated a lot of the time. Think of Job, a wise man. Job is part of the Bible's wisdom literature. But wisdom gives the wise man the skill he needs to stay faithful to God no matter what temptations or trials may come. This means sometimes true wisdom is going to look like foolishness in the eyes of the world. Again, think about Job. It looked foolish for Job to stay faithful to God after God had allowed everything to be taken away from him. But really the pathway of wisdom for Job was staying true to God, staying loyal to God, even in the midst of his suffering, even in the midst of his despair. Wisdom is seen in our words and our works. It is seen in our total lifestyle of maturity. Look again here. This this section is so rich, so full of 
description. James actually calls it the meekness of wisdom. This is what is manifested in our conduct, the meekness of wisdom. True wisdom is distinguished from its counterfeit by meekness. Jesus, of course, is called meek. Moses is called meek. This word meekness, it means strength under control. That's the idea. It's the iron fist in a velvet glove. That's the idea of meekness. The word here also suggests humility. Humility is a key ingredient in wisdom. In fact, Proverbs says, the fool is wise in his own eyes. He thinks he is wise, which proves he is a fool. The fool is known by his arrogance, by his pride. Pride is nothing to be proud of. That kind of pride demonstrates that you're really a fool. The humble man knows that he lacks wisdom and he knows he has no resources uh, to, to, to gain wisdom in himself. And so he does not look within himself or make himself the standard. He looks outside of himself. This is picking up on what James said way back at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1. James wrote there, if any of you lacks Wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it generously. If you are lacking in wisdom, ask God for wisdom. But you gotta recognize that lack in yourself. It takes humility. You have to confess that lack to God. You have to cry out, God, I need wisdom. I don't have wisdom in myself. And then God will grant wisdom. It's as if humility opens up this door in your heart so you can receive the wisdom God wants to give you. If you're, if you're prideful, that door in your heart's closed up. It's locked up. No wisdom can get in. No wisdom can penetrate the heart of the proud man. But the humble man, his heart is open. He receives God's wisdom. Wisdom arises out of humility. Humility that leads us to ask for what we don't have and cannot produce on our own. You cannot be the source of your own wisdom. The whole idea of looking within, follow, you know, the Disney message, follow your heart. That's the pathway of folly and ruin. The way of wisdom is asking God. Saying, God, I lack wisdom. Would you grant it? And of course, this means not only seeking wisdom from God in prayer, it also means seeking wisdom from God's people in counsel. The book of Proverbs again tells us there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. God's wisdom largely resides in His people. The accumulated wisdom of God's people. And so we're to seek it there. We seek out wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Find godly mentors and seek wisdom from them. It's really what Proverbs is saying and I think it's bound up in what James is saying here. The wise man is not afraid to seek help from others. He's not an arrogant know-it-all. In his humility, he opens himself up to receiving wisdom from others. Verse 17 reminds us this wisdom comes from above. James 1 describes every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father in heaven. Wisdom is a heavenly gift. Now, what we're going to come back and do in another sermon is look in verse 17 at James' sevenfold description of what this heavenly wisdom looks like. If you cry out to this wisdom... Cry out to God to give you this wisdom. And if God answers your prayer, what does that look like? Well, James gives us a seven 
fold list here. Seven categories of conduct are listed here. And actually, it's, it's, it's really kind of cool. Uh, in the Greek, the list is very poetic. It's basically a rhyming list. There's kind of, I'm not going to give it to you in the Greek. You don't want to hear me speaking Greek this morning. Uh, but uh, I have a hard enough time preaching in English a lot of times. But uh, in the Greek, it's very poetic. It, there's a kind of rhyming scheme here that's, that's very, very beautiful that James gives us. We'll talk about the specifics. I said wisdom's in the details, so we want to look at the details of this. We'll look at the details of that as well as the details of the opposite, the counterfeit wisdom, in future sermons. But what I want to do here is jump to the conclusion. Jump down to verse 18. Because what James does here is very interesting. James concludes this section as he does every section in the book, with a proverb. You know, we just, we just saw that. Verse 12 wraps up the, the section on the tongue with a proverb. And so then the section on wisdom is wrapped up with another proverb in verse 18. And that proverb not only summarizes the section that he's just been writing, it also introduces the section to come. And that's very clear with verse 18, that it introduces the next topic that has to do with, with life in community. But look at this proverb, this proverb that summarizes this section and serves as a bridge to the next. James says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we look at that list of of seven categories that James gives us, what we will find is that wisdom is social. Wisdom is communal. Wisdom has to do with how we live together in community. Wisdom has to do with our relationships with one another. And James summarizes that here. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's James' way of summing up in a single proverb what the life of wisdom looks like. Righteousness and peace. Wisdom, therefore, is the art of creating and maintaining shalom. That peace promised by the prophets. Wisdom manifests the peace of God, the shalom the prophets promised. Whereas by contrast, those who fall into the demonic, hellish form of wisdom, the wisdom from below, which again James also describes in this section, they will lack this peace. Their lives are full of envy and conflict. Their lives are full of quarrels and useless arguments. Their lives are full of bitterness and selfishness and even violence. Because they have to have their way. They have to have their way. And they'll resort to these means to get their way. Really, in a sense, this contrast James makes between the true wisdom and the false wisdom, the heavenly wisdom and the demonic wisdom, it's really just like Paul's contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. It's the same contrast. The fruit of the Spirit will be manifest in wise conduct The works of the flesh will be manifest in foolish conduct. The the, the wisdom from below, this demonic, hellish wisdom. And so the fool, instead of manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, he will manifest the works of the flesh. But here's the question that James' closing proverb forces us to ask about ourselves. What kind of seed are you sowing? What kind of seed are you sowing in your life? What kind of garden are you planting? James calls us to sow peace 
that we might reap a harvest of peace and righteousness. See, again, there are two wisdoms here. And so two ways to sow and reap. Will you sow foolishness and so reap wrath? Or will you sow peace and so reap peace and righteousness? What kind of seed are you sowing in your life? What kind of seeds are you planting? What kind of garden are you growing? A garden full of Trees of life for other people or a tree full of poisonous weeds? At the end of the previous section, it was what kind of water is flowing out of your mouth. Now it's what kind of, what kind of garden are you planting? Here's the problem. Many people will sow the seeds of foolishness and then hope and pray for crop failure. But it doesn't work that way. As Paul says in Galatians 6, you will reap what you sow. That is James' lesson here. You will reap what you sow. Now let me close with this. James started out asking, who is wise? Who is wise? Where is the wise man? Ultimately, that's a question that can only be answered one way. In fact, you can pose that question. Paul asked the same question to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read it this morning. Think about how he answers the question there. Who is the wise? Where is the wise man? Ultimately, that question can only be answered one way. Christ is the wise man. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is God's gift of wisdom. The gift from heaven that has come down to grant us wisdom. Wisdom is found in Christ. All the treasures of God's wisdom, Paul says in Colossians 2, are found in Christ. In His wisdom, He has satisfied God's justice and secured our forgiveness. That's the wisdom of the cross. In His wisdom, He provided the blueprints for creation. And in His wisdom, He now rules over creation as the Father's right-hand man. If you want to understand the creation, you understand the world, you've got to know Christ. Because His wisdom is the blueprint. His wisdom holds the key to every aspect of reality. He is the world's ruler. He is the world's transformer. He is the one who is humble and meek. He is the gentle one. His wisdom is manifest in His conduct. He is the pure one. He is the one who brings in a harvest of righteousness and peace because He has sown in peace. In Christ, in His death on the cross, He manifested the wisdom of God. And then that wisdom was buried as a kind of seed in the ground. And now coming forth from Christ is this great harvest of righteousness and peace. Christ has sown the ultimate seed of wisdom in His death and burial. And now that harvest is coming to fruition. Jesus is the One who has come down from above. The Father's good and perfect gift. Wisdom has descended from above. Wisdom has come to us in Christ. He is the eternal wisdom of the Father made flesh. And so in receiving Christ, you receive wisdom. In seeking Christ, you seek wisdom. In trusting and obeying Christ, you submit your life to wisdom and you grow in wisdom. This is what James wants for us. This is how your own life is transformed. This is how the world Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for giving us the wisdom that is Christ. May we live by his wisdom. May we trust in his wisdom. May we submit to his wisdom. May we imitate his wisdom. Father, may we plant the seeds of his wisdom in our garden. 
that a great harvest of peace and righteousness might come forth. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.